The lukewarm church, that is the title and subject of our message tonight. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we'll read it, we'll pray, and we'll ask the Lord to bless it. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to the church. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we pray that we would have open hearts this evening to receive your word, knowing that your word never returns void. So as we sit here with an open book, we pray, Jesus, that you'd speak right from the pages. In Jesus' name, amen. How criticism is received depends a lot on expertise and relationship. Expertise and relationship. As you guys discussed in your discussion time about the most powerful, life-transforming, positive criticism that someone's ever given you, I'm guessing it probably wasn't a stranger. If a stranger's walking on the street and stops you and says, I've seen your TikTok profile account and I think they're just terrible. I think they're really lame. You probably are a little bit offended. I don't know how offended you might be, but um, the point is a stranger giving you criticism is a lot different than your closest friend. It's like, you made those TikToks with me. Like, what's wrong with you? But the closer that a person is, the less they might feel inclined to give you the truth, right? Sometimes... You don't want to ruin the relationship. So you don't tell them if, like, they, they pour out their heart writing a song and they cannot stay on key at all, right? And they're just like, I worked so hard for the woman that I love and I just want to show it to you first before I show her. And you're just like, oh, man, this is so bad. But you don't have the heart to tell them. So you just kind of keep it in. You're just like, they're going to find out through someone at some point. So just like, you don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But anyway, so criticism we know it comes out more powerful the closer you are in a relationship but it's not enough to have a relationship there also has to be expertise there's nothing worse than someone who's a close friend criticizing you on things they know nothing about or they think that they know something because they're rich and successful they have a lot of instagram followers and so they start giving you criticism about your cooking or about whatever your writing your homework something and you're looking at them like, okay, just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're good at everything. But you have friends like that, right? 
that they just think that they're good at everything because they're good and successful in one thing. So it's not enough to be in a relationship, in close proximity, but you also need to be someone who knows what they're talking about in order to have valuable criticism. Well, here, Jesus, the authority of authorities, is criticizing a church. And he's telling them some things that he sees he doesn't like, that needs to change, needs to improve. Not only does he have a relationship because we are his children if we believed on him, right? But he also has the expertise. He knows what he's talking about. And so what he does is he claims his experience. He kind of starts off with his resume. And so what I would challenge you tonight is, if someone were to criticize you, what would they have to do to make you listen? Sometimes you're a little stubborn, right? I'm a little stubborn. Somebody tells you something, and you're like, I don't do that. You're totally wrong. You get defensive. However, if Jesus tonight wants to criticize you and wants to criticize me, we have no choice but to accept it because he only gives the truth. He's not biased. He doesn't tell you things just because he really wants you to do something else. He is the truth. And so he starts off by saying this. These things, verse 14 says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, it's not saying that like Jesus was created, but he's saying, I was there in the very beginning of all creation. It also says he's the amen. The word amen, if you didn't know, means so be it. Let it be done. Or I agree. That's why we pray in Jesus' name and everybody says amen. Why? Because we're all in agreement together that we want this thing to happen. Now, Jesus says that he is the amen. Now, what does that mean? Well, in summary, when it says that Jesus is the amen, the faithful witness, and he is also the beginning of the creation of God, here's what it's basically saying. It's saying that everything that the Father speaks, the Son fulfills. Everything that God the Father says, the Son accomplishes. It's not so with my children, right? I talk to my kids and I expect when I say something, they actually do it. I say, clean your room. Oh, yeah, okay. And, but you're like, hey, clean your room. I know. Well, if you knew, why don't you get up and clean your room? Right? Why the attitude? And you're just like, I'm a failure as a parent because they're giving me attitude. They're not cleaning the room. If they don't clean the room, they're going to fail in society. They're not going to get a job. You know, this is the things that run through your mind as a parent. But Jesus, he never fails to accomplish what the Father asks of him. John chapter 8, verse 29 Jesus says, I always do those things that please him. If only it were true of my kids. <laughs> I always do the things that please my father. Great. That's awesome. No, instead, Jesus is the only one who perfectly accomplishes what the father says. But that's why Jesus can be, a, be trusted to be the one who actually is the vehicle and venue through which God's will is done. That is why in the beginning... We see God said, let there be light. He said it, and it happened. The whole universe came into existence, how? By God's word, his command. And we've learned that God, the Son, is actually called the word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So we know that Jesus is actually the word of God. So do you see that correlation here? It's not like God says something and the son delays and he starts procrastinating and like, oh, I know, I got this to-do list. The father told me to do all these things and I just, I can't keep up. Uh, he's such a taskmaster, you know? When, when the father says it, the son immediately accomplishes it. If God has promised it, we know the son will fulfill it. This is why Jesus is called in 1 Peter, the living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So when Jesus is spoken of, it's said that he's a living hope. It's not just hope. It's not just a wish. You know, I really wish that Jesus would come through. I really wish God would listen to me. But when Jesus is a hope, that means that it is as certain as it's already done. He's a living hope. The resurrection from the dead was proof that God always fulfills his promises. Jesus says, I'm going to be back. And he said that to his disciples after he died, he did show up. And then he went up into heaven and says, yeah, I'm still going to be back. And now we have this expectation as a church that he will return to earth one day. But since it's a living hope, that means that we should be growing in anticipation the longer that time goes on. But oftentimes it's the opposite, isn't it? The longer that time goes on, the worse the world gets, the more that we start to despair and, and be hopeless. We start to wonder if God will fulfill his promises. I know that he parted the Red Sea. Yes, I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. But can I be sure that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living today? Can I be sure that God will make good on his promises? Well, for us, for the believer, it should be that we grow in anticipation. Much like in only a couple weeks, I'm going to have my first biological child. And I am excited. You can cheer for that. That's okay. And as the days grow closer, I'm more excited. I'm not less excited, right? The more that you're, you start thinking about like, okay, I have to pack my hospital bag and what are we going to do? And the baby's got to get the baby room ready. And you start getting excited and you start doing things in anticipation for the baby's arrival. And you're certain it's going to happen. I mean, is there a chance that something terrible might happen? Yeah, but I'm not planning according to the worst possible scenario. I'm planning according to the probability that something amazing is going to happen. But we don't live that way, do we? The way that we live with God's promises is more like a probability of it never being fulfilled. We live according to what we see, not the unseen. We look around at circumstances and say, well, probably we're all going to die of coronavirus. Probably the government's going to take over. Probably all these terrible things are going to happen. And Jesus will come back in a thousand years. That's the probability. Rather than if God has always been faithful to this point, it's probably the case that he's going to be faithful tomorrow. He's always shown up thus far. 
and he'll always continue to show up. I was reading about, uh, in my devotional time, Samson. His parents were promised that you were going to have this child, and you have to do certain things to prepare this child set apart for me. Don't cut his hair. Don't give him wine. Do all these things, because he's going to be a judge of Israel. And then this angel's prophesying to them, and then he disappears. And the guy who's going to be the dad of Samson, he says, oh, no, we saw the angel of the Lord. We saw God face to face, which means we're going to die. And you know what his wife said? If God were going to kill us, why would he give us a prophecy? Why would God give us a promise if he was only going to take us before that promise is fulfilled? And if God has shown you something, if God has promised to you something, you can have the confidence that nothing's going to happen until his word is fulfilled. And Jesus himself comes to personally accomplish the promises of God. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. But I, I know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with a lifetime of broken promises. The dad who promised he was going to show up. The parent who says, I'm going to go to your games. I'm going to be there for you. The friends who said they'll always have your back. You're used to having your promises broken. However, Jesus so defines himself in being the fulfillment of the promise of God. I am the amen. So we can rejoice even before that promise is fulfilled. Because God's promise is as good as a fulfillment. When he says it, it's as good as done. Because we know that Jesus himself is the one who has to show up. In the Old Testament, we used to see certain signs of blessings. We used to see material possessions, you know, having a lot of cattle. And like Abraham was blessed. Job was blessed because of how much stuff they had. Physical health, freedom for persecution, and children. Lots and lots of kids. That was the Old Testament sign of God's blessing. But in the New Testament, you don't see that anymore. You don't see in the New Testament... Peter and Paul and all these New Testament apostles having lots of possessions, lots of money, lots of kids, freedom from persecution. And here's why. Because in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, we obtain the Holy Spirit, which outweighs anything that you could receive in this life and is a down payment on the next one. All of us have received, if you believed in Jesus, the Spirit of God. And this is why 2 Corinthians says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outer man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we can say amen to the promises of God and say, so be it. And we can say no to the TV, no to our cell phones and turn them off because they're only distracting us from what's really happening behind the scenes. And the more that we meditate on this book, on the truth of the world, on God's word, the more that it's going to like, it sounds lame, but you know the Marie Kondo thing, like spark joy. Like you will have joy in your life 
the more that you meditate on this book and the promises that God has for you and for me. Now, in contrast, sadly, to all of this, right, our natural reaction should be praise. Our natural reaction to what God is doing in the world should be gratitude. It should be looking in awe at who God is. But when we're distracted like the church of Laodicea, you start to see other things happen. And so we're going to see three things that describe the spiritual state of this church at Laodicea. The first is apathy. The second is poverty. And the third is emptiness. Apathy, poverty, and emptiness. Let's go to apathy first in verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, this is a very popular passage, and it needs some explanation. And so Laodicea was a wealthy, rich city. They had it all. And they were very inventive, and therefore, in order to get water into the city, they built a six-mile aqueduct. And it derived water from a hot springs six miles away. So the, the sad thing is, when they took water from a hot springs six miles away, by the time it got to the city of Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So what, what does that mean, lukewarm? Maybe you've heard that a billion times, different interpretations as a believer growing up in the church. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is God is saying that I wish you were on fire for God or you were cold towards God. Sometimes you hear that. But if that was true, then why would God say, why would Jesus say, I could wish you were cold or hot. I could wish you were cold towards God, that doesn't really make any sense. So I think that's kind of us taking a recent kind of uh, metaphor on fire for God, cold towards God, and we're retroactively applying it backwards. Instead, what it does mean is this. I'll give you an example. Um, I love coffee. I hope you do too. It's amazing. Uh, Rook cold brew is probably the best cold brew you're going to get in New Jersey. Uh, and therefore, I know as a coffee drinker that cold coffee is amazing and hot coffee is amazing, but coffee that's lukewarm is kind of gross, right? Like it's refreshing on a hot day to have some cold brew. It's refreshing on a cold winter night to have some hot coffee, but just lukewarm coffee is just, it's just sad. But to have hot coffee, here's what you got to do. You got to heat up the water. To have cold coffee, here's what you got to do. For cold brew, you got to have it sit for a couple days in the refrigerator. But get this. To have lukewarm coffee, all it has to do is just sit there. Just like this water here, all I had to do to become lukewarm was sit in my car for a couple hours. And this is exactly what happens to the state of the church. It's not that you're hot on fire for God and cold towards God. It's just the fact that you don't do anything. And the longer that we sit there, the more that we turn to, into complacent Christians. It's not that we're, we're doing things for God or not doing things for God. It's the fact that we just become so complacent because there's no spiritual activity whatsoever. So this church being a wealthy church, you see in verse 17, you say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. It's like they were trusting in their resources. And because of that, they forgot about their need for God. 
Now, how sad would it be if we were living a couple hundred years ago and there were still monarchies in the world and a king was going to have a royal, expo- uh, royal art exhibit and he was commissioning the world's greatest artists and you were invited to this art show and you had these different artists. I don't know their names, but you can fill in the blank if you're an art historian. I took that 10 years ago now. So you have all these, these world-class artists coming together for the king, creating these beautiful works of art. And you see this one artist, oh, that's amazing. This other artist, that's amazing. And then you see a blank canvas. And then you're just kind of confused. And the artist is standing proudly next to his work and kind of go, what, what happened to this one? So I don't know. I just, I just feel like I was just lazy. I just, I don't know. I procrastinated. I didn't get it done in time. So. But I brought the canvas back because I didn't want to rob the king of his money. So here it is. Got the canvas. Like, how embarrassing would that be for the king and how shameful would that be for the servant if he failed to create anything? And this is how Christians usually live their lives at times like this. Well, I'm not, I'm not sinning. I'm not, like, committing adultery or anything. You know, I'm not, like, doing any of the big sins. I didn't kill anybody. I'm not doing anything wrong. But it's not, are you doing anything wrong? The question is, what on earth are you doing for Christ's sake? I stole that, for Je- uh, stole that from Jesus. Stole that from Lloyd. <laughs> He's close to Jesus, I suppose. I always thought that was funny. I heard that when I was like 13. It just always stuck with me. What on earth are you doing for Christ's sake? Are you doing anything? Do you wake up in the morning and ask God, what are my instructions for today? What do you want me to do? Now, it's not like I do that every single day either. But this is why we come together, to remind ourselves of what we know is true and important. For us to look around at this hurting world that doesn't have hope and say, we have the cure. We have the answer. You know, so many people get hyped up, right? You see these videos about the, these doctors standing in front of Washington, D.C. and saying, we have the cure for coronavirus. And they're passionate. They're getting out. Don't censor media. They're so passionate about it. Where are the Christians saying, we have the cure for the biggest problem of all humanity, death and sin. It's Jesus Christ. If we started taking that heart to people and saying, you know what? I'm going to overcome being shy. Like, I'm going to overcome my insecurities because there's a person who's my neighbor, who's going to be lost for all eternity and lost for, for the present if he doesn't know the truth. If we're thinking creatively of ways to get the gospel out, working together, praying for our unsaved family members and friends, if we start having that heart, just, just imagine how the world would change. The divisiveness, the politics, all that stuff would start to fade away if people would see what is most important. I saw this meme that was like hilarious, but it was, um, it was like a picture of a unicorn and then it just said over it, I don't know why it's a unicorn, but it just says, I'm an introvert, but I'm still doing the work of anti-racism. And it's like, so funny. It's like, I, I can totally picture that, right? The person who's like so introverted is like, I gotta do something, oh, I don't know. And just like walks out and starts protesting. Like they overcome the in- insecurity because of the thing that they know is more important than your own feelings of personal security. That's difficult, right? That's hard to do. But we have a helper. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't ever have to go alone into a dark world. Years ago, I remember when I was struggling at my worst, caught up in sin and feeling like there was no way out. The thing that brought me out of it wasn't 
accountability relationships and programs on the internet and apps reminding me to read the Bible and whatever. The thing that drew me out of my darkest days was stumbling on a website where people were posting all these secret confessions, all these things that they couldn't tell anybody. So it was like a teenage girl who was talking about being raped by their uncle. It was a father who's so depressed he's gonna commit suicide the next day and his family has no idea he's depressed. And it's all stuff people are submitting anonymously. And I remember looking at that, all those submissions and thinking like, I have the answer to every single one of those problems. And here am I with my own problems that really are not that big of a deal and are self-inflicted. Like all I have to do is ask God for help, receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then I can go and be the solution to the people who are dying for lack of knowledge, the lack of the knowledge of God. But that means we have to have compassion on the world around us. We need to see behind the politics, see behind the memes, behind the social media accounts, and look critically at the people around us and say, you know what? That's a person. The person who's the most liberal, the person who's the billionaire, could be Bill Gates. He needs Jesus too. Every single person in this world needs Jesus Christ. And if Paul the Apostle was not exaggerating when he says, I am the worst of all sinners that's ever existed, I persecuted the church, and he got saved, what's to stop us from praying that the worst of sinners today would get saved? We need to see with Jesus' eyes, eyes of compassion for multitudes of people who do not know him. So let's pray that God would awake us from apathy. Let's look at verse 17. See, the second thing this church struggled with, which is poverty. Verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Couple here, a couple things here. The first thing is this. This church had a false sense of security. They trusted in their riches. They thought, I'm good. For them, the economy goes bad, doesn't really matter because I have enough stored in the bank. I'm gonna be okay. But truthfully, if we've learned anything in 2020, is that nothing is secure and safe unless it's placed in Jesus, unless it's placed in heaven. Jesus said at first, he says, do not put your treasures on earth where moth and rust are gonna, uh, gonna rot it and then thieves are gonna break in and steal, but store up your treasures in heaven. No one can touch it if it's in heaven. People put their trust in things that ultimately are gonna rust and rot and be stolen. But you and I don't have to do that. We can put our ultimate trust in Jesus Christ. And this church, one of the reasons why they're apathetic is because they trusted in things that were not eternal. The second thing is a lack of self-awareness. They didn't realize that they were actually poor. They thought they were rich but they're actually poor. Do you, would you realize today, like we're talking about the criticism of Jesus into your heart, into my heart, would you realize your spiritual state as Jesus, is, as Jesus sees it today, if he were to tell you, hey, listen, you are 
spiritually starving because you haven't spent any time in my word. You haven't spent any time in prayer. You are spiritually disillusioned because you're listening to these podcasts. You're watching these TV shows, listening to this music, and you haven't heard from me. Like maybe we need to do what the Bible says and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Ask for God's input. Ask for his word. Ask for him to shape you and mold you so you don't find yourself to actually be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, how embarrassing would that be for, to find a homeless person on the street and say, hey, I'm here to help you. And he says, I don't need any help. I'm actually rich. You would say that guy's crazy. He's out of his mind. And you'd probably be right. But that's how Christians behave when we don't spend time looking at the mirror of Scripture. When we don't spend time. Like, we just don't know what we look like spiritually because we don't spend time having God examine us. Search me and know me. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. You, you can only have God examine you and listen to that examination if you're willing to sit down and ask him. God, would you, would you show me what's, what's going on in my heart? Times of worship where we're reflecting. Times of prayer where we're just listening. And then thirdly, not only a false sense of security, lack of awareness, but that God freely gives what the world kills itself trying to obtain. Do you realize that? The world tries so hard to obtain satisfaction, fulfillment in this life. And God says, I'm giving it to you for free. You don't have to do anything. Like people kill themselves working jobs that are 80 hours a week, trying to get more money, trying to be in the right relationship, doing all the research to be able to be the best of the best, practice themselves to death. People are doing that all the time, not realizing that at the top, they're still not going to be able to get what they want. That's why Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could get what they ever dreamed of so that they realize that it's not the answer. I just, I saw um, a video of him winning his second Golden Globe. He says, you know what I'm going to do tonight? I'm gonna, Jim Carrey's going to go lay his head on his pillow tonight and he's going to dream of having that third Golden Globe because then it'll really be enough. The truth is, you and I have free access to fulfillment, satisfaction. And that's because Jesus himself is that. Isaiah 55, verse 1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live. You know, it's, wouldn't it be like the worst thing in the world if we do find the cure to the coronavirus? And the only people who could afford it are billionaires. And then in their selfishness, they decide not to share with anybody. Wouldn't that be the worst thing in the world? The truth is, God did not give the gospel to the rich people. He gave it to the poor. When the angels announced Jesus was coming, he went to shepherds on the outskirts of town. Literally, if you're going to announce that you're going to show up and you're God, once you go to the PR people, go to the king, 
hey, by the way, I'm going to be here, so prepare my way, you know, make an entrance, get my room in the palace ready. Instead, he goes to shepherds, obscure people who had no one to even gossip to. But by Jesus coming to the poor, he's able to reach all. Because if Jesus only comes to the rich, only the rich have access to the rich. But when Jesus comes to the poor, the rich have to humble themselves to come to the poor. If God came to the poor, he came to all. And that's exactly what he did. Which means that there's nothing stopping you from receiving Jesus today. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you want to have eternal life. You want to have eternal hope. You want to have love that surpasses anything that your heart is able to even hold. There's nothing stopping you today. All you have to do is, is repent, to confess your sins to God, and receive him as Lord and Savior. And I'll give you an opportunity to do that tonight. But lastly, let's look at the last couple of verses. 19, not only were they apathetic, they were full of poverty, but they were also empty. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Uh, quick side note. Um, Jesus is saying to this church that I know I'm coming really harsh on you right now. However, if I'm chastening, if I'm, if I'm instructing you, correcting you, it's because I love you. It's not because he's angry with you. It's not because he hates you. But it's God's mercy when you get caught. Somebody needs to hear that tonight. Because it's so embarrassing and shameful when you're caught in your sin. But you need to know that it's God's mercy. Because it's only sometimes when you get caught that it stops you from going any further. It's God's mercy when you're caught. And when you're disciplined, when you're corrected. Because that's God saying, I love you and I don't want to see you go any further than when you are right now. And so that's why he's showing up and rebuking. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You've probably heard that verse at altar calls, at times where people are asking for people who don't believe in Jesus to believe on him. But this is a verse written to a church, to believers. And here we see Jesus is outside of the heart of the believer. Isn't that interesting? How does that happen? Jesus is outside the door and knocking, saying, anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in. All you have to do is open the door and I will gladly come into your heart. So what's stopping Jesus? What keeps him outside? Deal Moody has this great quote about this. He says this, I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit and ambition and self-seeking, pleasure in the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. I also believe that many a man is praying for God to fill him when he is full already with something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray that he would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that is contrary to God is turned out, then the spirit will come. Maybe Jesus is outside your heart tonight because 
You filled it with so many other things and crowded him out. You haven't given him room. You've fallen into a spiritual coma. It's not just like you hate God all of a sudden. It's not like you don't believe in God. It's just you don't even think about him because you began to fall asleep. And you need someone to bang on the door of your heart. Say, hey, I'm on the outside. I'm knocking. Tonight, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. Say, let's not be apathetic. Realize you think that everything's fine, but you're in spiritual poverty. I'm here. I want to fill you. I want to use you to change the world. But you need to let me in. And letting him in means casting out some other things. Are you willing to do that tonight? Are you willing to let go of whatever it is that's not God that's filling you right now? Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship that you knew you should have broke up with that person 10 years ago and you're still in that relationship. Maybe it is an addiction that you have to give up and nobody else knows that you're struggling with it. It could be something petty. But to you, it's not. To you, it's everything. And God wants to rid you of anything that's not him so he can fill you to the full with his Holy Spirit. He stands at the door and knocks. Verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear what he's saying there? God wants you to sit on his throne with him. He wants you to rule and reign with him. That means he wants to partner with you and with me. God himself wants you to be able to work with him in the renewing of the world. Isn't that the most exciting, most beautiful mission that's ever possible to be conceived by any human being? What's stopping us from engaging in that mission? Over the next couple of weeks, finishing out August in our time of grading here, gathering on Thursday nights, we're going to do a study on the Holy Spirit. And I hope that you join us so that we can spend more time talking about what it takes to empty ourselves of self and fill ourselves with the Spirit so we can be agents of change. That's what the world needs. It was uh, A.W. Tozer who says, I think it's Tozer, it might have been Moody too. The world has yet to see what it's like to have a man who's so completely given to the Holy Spirit. And maybe you and I can be those people. Maybe we can see a new Jesus movement. Maybe we can see a revival. But we'll never know if we remain lukewarm. Remember, all you have to do to be lukewarm is just sit there. Some people might be more charismatic I'm not asking for you to be charismatic. Some of you may be more like thinking, like I'm definitely more of a thinker than I am charismatic. That's, that's not a bad thing either. I'm not even asking for you to be a thinker. I'm just asking for you to turn up the volume in your worship, wherever you are, for you to think about letting go of what's holding you back, to run your race with endurance. Let's pray.